So, we're back. We're continuing. Uh, Colin and I were counting on, okay, so how long is this series going? This is a long series. <laughs> Bible basics. What have we looked at so far? We've looked at the Bible. What is the Bible? We've looked at God. Who is God? We've looked at control. Who has it? We looked at creation. Why is it? We looked at the sin, the creepy doctrine. What is it? We've looked at covenant. What are the ABCs of covenant? We've looked at Jesus. Who is Jesus? Today, what is today's doctrine? What is it? So when I became a Christian in high school, I think it's safe to say that on our small community, it was a shock to everyone that knew me, um, especially to my younger brother. My younger brother literally was asking, what happened to my brother? Um, he, quote, said this, all I know is the daily beating times ended. But for the next two years, he was trying to figure out what happened to my brother. But there was someone also in the town that was absolutely more shocked than even my brother. Who is it, you ask? Me. Why? Because... Um, I hated everything about church. Let's just start at the top of my list. We'll start with pastors. Could there be, you couldn't pick a more unrelatable people on the planet to be around for me than pastors. Uh, words like weird, strange, socially awkward, uh, stiff, stuffy, hokey, emas emasculated, all comes to mind. Second place was the teaching. After 10 years of being in all kinds of church environments, for 10 years, I don't remember one meaningful thing said in all those 10 years. The only thing I do remember of everything that was ever said was from a New England pastor that went like this, the world will freeze by the year 2000. Third on my list, yeah, my parents are here. They took us to that church. I'm sorry I called them out. <laughs> Honor your mother and father. Forgive me, Lord. Yes, yes. The third place was all the churchy stuff, right? The little meals and the prayer meetings and the Bible studies and the music and the singing and the special events and the services and all that stuff that goes with it and all the different seasons, all of that stuff. I felt like I was a fish out of water and I couldn't find oxygen in any of it. At one point, I simply told my mom, I, I don't know if she remembers it, I do, we were driving to McDonald's, we were about ready to go through the drive-thru, I flat out told her, I don't like church, I don't like Christians, they are nothing like me, mom. I feel like who I am is antithetical to a Christian, like you couldn't be more opposite so what happened? What happened to me? Today's doctrine is what happened to me. Today's doctrine is called conversion. If you're a Christian, what happened to you? Why are you a Christian? 
That's the doctrine of conversion. If you are not a Christian this morning, how do you become a Christian? How does someone, anyone, become a Christian? That is the doctrine of conversion. So we're going to stand. We're going to read several texts. I want you to, uh, well, we're going to ask the question of each text. So I want you to go. I want you to be curious. I want you to become Sherlock Holmes. I want you to listen to the text and see if you can answer, what is conversion? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, we are going to start with nine. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged legally that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. If you were wondering, this is probably one of the most narrow-minded statements in all the Bible right there. Not one. Not one. But not one. Who? Not one. What is conversion? Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. What is conversion? John 6. Jesus is speaking. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, what is conversion? Jesus has a conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus. Jesus answered him, truly I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What is conversion? Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. What is conversion? Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What is conversion? So faith. So faith comes. Do you want to, here it is. Here's the great mystery of life. How do you get faith? Right now this morning, I don't have faith. How are you going to get faith? Well, my faith is a, is a flicker. It's a pilot light. Well, how are you going to turn it into a burning furnace? How does it happen? So faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. What is conversion? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Paul, writing on that, says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. So Lord, we ask that you would gladden our souls to the wonder of conversion, gladden our souls to what conversion actually is, gladden our souls with your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So conversion, what is it? Here we go. Let's roll up our sleeves. Jesus answered him. So we're at John 3. If you want 
We're going to jump around, get your electronic devices. You can use the Bible in front of you. It's always good to look at the text. There's something about looking at it, hearing it, that does something. So Jesus answered him. Who's he answering? Nicodemus, a religious leader. Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again. So literally, here's what that text is saying. Unless one is born from above. So unless the above is your mother, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's striking that he says he cannot see. You would think he would say he cannot enter. So it's almost like Jesus is saying, you can't even see it. It's like there's this whole other world out there, and it's more real than the chair you're sitting in, and you can't even see it. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying conversion is from above. So what is conversion? Well, right now we know that conversion, according to Jesus, is from above. Uh, truly connecting to God. You want to truly connect to God. How do you truly connect to God? From this text, Jesus is saying, people that truly connect to God, it happens from above. Becoming a Christian, how do you become a Christian? Jesus is saying, from above. So we can get all technical theologically if you want to. We can say things like, the source of conversion is God. We can say things like, the cause of conversion is God. So, God causes conversion. What's the effect? I'm converted. In church history, if you were in church history and you're riding a horse or a buggy and you're looking at the buggy in front of you, you're seeing a buggy bumper sticker. And it would say things like, grace alone. To God alone be the glory. That was the ancient world. That's how the ancient church talked. We moderns would say something like this. Uh, God is the author of your salvation. We might say things like this. God does the saving. This is the message of the Bible. So the message of the Bible is that God does the saving. The message of the Bible is God does it. The message of the Bible is grace alone. The message of the Bible is God alone gets the glory. That's the message of the Bible. So what happened to me from above happened to me. So my brother, he's like, what happened to my brother? From above happened to his brother. If you're a Christian, what happened to you? From above happened to you. God happened to you. If you're not a Christian, how do you become a Christian? From above happens to you. God happens to you. So what is conversion? We're going to say it the way I'm going to say it for this time together. Conversion is a miracle from God. Conversion is a miracle from above. God does it. That's shorthand. What is conversion? God does it. Okay, so in verse 4, though, we don't have, we didn't read it, but I got into the text, and I realized we have to read it, so I'm going to read it. Verse 4, Nicodemus has a response to this, right? He's confused. He says, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Here's the, it's incredible, but from this point on, from Nicodemus, from this point 
on in the history of the church, everyone has struggled with conversion being from above. Nicodemus is the first in the church to struggle with the aboveness of conversion, to struggle with the God-saving-us part of conversion. Because we naturally, you see what Nicodemus is doing? He's naturally seeing conversion. In other words, when he thinks about conversion, as he thinks and feels, we naturally think, feel, experience conversion a certain way. We naturally theologize about conversion a certain way. We naturally write and sell books about conversion a certain way. We naturally do church and do ministry all around conversion a certain way. What is that certain way? As something from below. We struggle with the from above part. We, we get the from below part. We get the, it's a natural thing, a self-activated thing. Do you see how that's happening? Look what, look what he's saying. How can a man be born when he is old? Do you see that natural part? He's getting it in the natural part. Wait, how can a man be born when he's old? That's just not natural. And what Jesus is saying is not natural. But Nicodemus is stuck in the natural. You see what he does next? Well, how can he enter? How can he enter? He enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. What Jesus is saying is not self-activated. It can't be self-triggered. But Nicodemus is stuck in self-activation. He's stuck in what's natural. He's stuck in self-activation. He's stuck in self-triggering. He's stuck in a world of from below. So Nicodemus sees the world from below. So when he thinks about God, it's from below. When he thinks about the Bible, it's from below. When he thinks about prayer, it's from below. When he thinks about church, it's from below. When he thinks about relationships, it's from below. Nicodemus sees the world from below, natural, self-activating, so according to the Bible, there are actually two ways to see the world. So you're wondering, like, how do I know this? Like, the two ways to see the world are you can see the world from above or you can see the world from below. You can see the world from above, God does it, or you can see the world from below, I do it. Why does this matter? I mean, think about it, y'all. Why does this matter? I mean, who cares as long as they're converted? Who cares about the from above debate, which we're going to do on Wednesday, <laughs> and the from below debate? Who cares about it? As long as there's conversion, who cares one way or the other? Now, here's what I could. I could do a couple things at this point. I could get all spiritual on you. I, could come, I can get real holy on you. I can become like those pastors I couldn't stand. And I could say... Well, God's glory is at stake on how you answer this. Uh, God's glory has always been a big deal in the Bible. It's always been a big deal in church history. It's always been a big deal in the church. Many actually report this is a major motivation in the Christian life, the glory of God. Many that really get the glory of God deep in their bones report greater intimacy with God and report lesser anxiety in their life and report a greater freedom from the self-preoccupation 
So I could say, I could come up to you and I could say, hey, listen, God's glory is at stake. And there's a lot of good things about that. If God's glory is at stake, if, if God's glory gets removed, you get more anxiety in your life. If God's glory gets removed, you, move, you remove a major solid motivation in the Christian life, one that actually le- teaches us and learns you to not make everything about you. And you know when that happens? You know when you're the most free and the most happy and the most alive? When it's not about you. When you're actually able to do something for its own sake, play a sport for its own sake. Oh, that was so awesome. Play an instrument for its own sake. See, what the glory of God does is it actually allows you now to be free to do things for its own sake, for the glory of God, not your sake. So we could say, from above versus from below puts the glory of God at stake, which puts a lot of things at stake in your life. I could say that, but I'm not going to say that. I could get all personal and pastoral on you. And I could say things, well, the quality of your Christian life, the quality of your relationships, the quality of your church life, and the quality of your mission in life is at stake on whether you get from above and from below right in understanding conversion. I could say that. Well, why would I say that? But Well, if I did, if I was going to say it, I'd go to Colossians and I'd read Paul saying, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Do you see what he just said? As you received him, conversion, now walk in that, Christian life. Oh, so how you understand conversion shapes your Christian life. How you understand conversion shapes your relationship with God. How we understand conversion will shape your spiritual sanity. I could say these things, but I won't. Instead, I'm going to tell you about the most famous missionary of the past 200 years, a guy named David Livingston. He was a son of a poor Scottish mill worker. He was a hard worker. He overcame all the odds of his poor poverty class system in place and became a medical doctor. He then spent the next 32 years bringing Jesus and his salvation to Africa. He did it in word. He went to places and to people that had never heard about Jesus before. And he did it indeed. He brought medical compassion. He was a part of ending the slave trade to Africa and Britain. He did this for 32 years. Most men would have quit before five. He was mauled by a lion. He was wrecked by malarial fevers regularly. He was shot at by angry chiefs with poisoned arrows. How was your day, honey? Well, there was the chief on the corner. He was attacked by a hippo while traveling by boat, and then he was chased by crocodiles while trying to swim to shore. He was slithered over by a snake. He wrote, to be aroused in the middle of the night by five feet of cold green snake gliding over one's face is unpleasant. (laughs) He crossed the Kalahari Desert to the Sambezi River deep into Africa. Before he did it, he was told, it can't be done, David. Sixteen years into his African ministry, he wrote a book 
on what had happened in this mission. It became an international bestseller. Why did it become an instant bestseller, though? That's what was really interesting to me. Who cares about some missionary dude in Africa? One of his biographers wrote the answer this way. A Britain grown tame. A Britain grown tame heard of his adventures and sat up in wonder. There it is. For most of the Christian church today, we're tame. Our God is tame. Our relationships are tame. Our churches are tame. Our mission is tame. Our leaders are Tame. Our preaching is tame. From below always produces tame. From above makes you sit up and wonder. Conversion, the miracle kind, the kind that God does it, makes you sit up and wonder. Miracle, the self-activating kind, the from below kind, makes you tame. After Jesus weeps for Lazarus, after Jesus weeps for his sisters, Martha and Mary, after Jesus weeps for you, and after Jesus weeps for me, he comes to the tomb. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, man, don't you know by this time there's going to be an odor? He's been dead for four days. Calvin says, then Jesus deeply moved. So Jesus was deeply moved twice. It's one of the most famous verses, the shortest verse in the Bible. Deeply moved, Jesus wept. That's the Jesus wept. He was deeply moved, and they translated it into Jesus wept. This is the second time he's deeply moved. So one time, he's learning about Lazarus. At one time, he's seeing the devastation in the sisters, and he's thinking of you, and he weeps, deeply moved. But this time, it's different. And Calvin's the only one that gets the twist of the Greek. Calvin says, Jesus deeply moved means Jesus is deeply groaning, almost growling. In other words, he says, listen, Jesus doesn't come to this tomb to this corpse, to this death, and he doesn't look at it like an idle spectator. He's not passive. He's not kind of watching. He's not going, oh, yeah. Following death's movements, following sin's destruction, following the devastation of the world, and he's not idle, and he's not watching, he's not taking notes, and he's not saying, he got Lazarus. 
the whole movement of the whole scene shifts. First, he weeps at the devastation, and he comforts those needing to be comforted. And then he turns to the tomb, and he roars like a lion. Deeply moved. Calvin says he's not an idle spectator. He's the champion facing the enemy. It is the ultimate David and Goliath. And Jesus says, no. No, you don't. She's mine. He's mine. You will not have Lazarus. You will take me instead, death. You will not have Lazarus. You will take me instead, sin. You will not have Lazarus. You will take me instead, evil one. And my death will crush you. And my death will end you. And my death will sever your head from your body and I'll hold it up just like David did Goliath. I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. Hear me roar. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Sit up and wonder. Sit up and wonder because Jesus did it. Sit up and wonder because Jesus' death defeated death. Sit up and wonder because the dead rise. Sit up and wonder because Jesus now comes for you. Sit up and wonder because he now comes to you and says, Sarah, come out. He now comes to you. What happened to my brother? Jeff, come out. Sit up and wonder. Sit up and wonder because Lazarus doesn't open his eyes and say, I did it. <laughs> Sit up and wonder because Lazarus doesn't open his eyes and say, listen, I was only half dead. I was in Princess Bride. Sit up and wonder because Lazarus didn't open up his eyes and say, listen, I made myself savable. Sit up and wonder because Lazarus didn't open his eyes and say, man, it was the color of the strips of linen that activated God in my life. Sit up and wonder because Lazarus did not say, I did it. Sit up and wonder if you're not a Christian because right now, Jesus is calling you. How can you say that, Jeff? Because you're here. And right now, he's saying to you, if you're not a Christian, come
So trust that he did it for you. Trust that his death is now your death. Trust that he became your sin so that he could take it from you. Trust that he faced the ultimate of all enemies, the ultimate Goliath, and he roared at it and destroyed it in your place. So, what is conversion? It's a miracle from above. God did it. So sit up and wonder. <laughs>